0: A few months ago, I was lucky enough to sneak away for the weekend and attend the inaugural Sorrento Writers' Festival. Immersed in stories by the seaside, I was able to take in the thinking and wonderings and writing of some of Australia's most celebrated novelists and journalists. One of those was award-winning author and journalist Kate Legg, who has chronicled social and political affairs since the 1980s. At the festival, Kate was interviewed about her latest book, an unflinchingly honest, Raw and deeply painful memoir called Infidelity and Other Affairs. The book explores what happened when Kate's husband's serial cheating upended her life, her 30 year marriage, and her sense of self. I was fascinated by Kate's story and that of her complex family of origin, and in particular by the open acceptance, forgiveness, and understanding she developed for her husband in the face of his betrayal and deceit. To this day, they remain firm friends. So I asked Kate to join us on Human Cogs to explore the complexities of infidelity, how our families shape and scar us, and how the getting of wisdom is mostly got along the rutted roads of the grand maps of misadventure in all of our lives. Here's my conversation with the wonderful Kate Legg. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Great, League, thank you for joining us in conversation on Human Cogs today. Um, We're here ostensibly to talk about your latest book, a memoir about your marriage and the matterings of your life. Tell us about your marriage to Greg Highwood. Oh,
1: my goodness me. (laughs) Well, um, we met in Canberra in uh, Parliament House uh, during the beginning of the Hawke government's reign and there were affairs, of course, happening all over in those days. I mean, Brittany Higgins has lifted the lid on some of the toxic culture in Parliament House, but back then, my goodness, it was happening... There were affairs happening under every desk, behind every door, right up into the prime ministerial suite. But no one ever wrote about them. We all talked about them. Everyone knew about them, but nobody ever addressed it. Um, you know, we met, We uh, our first conversation lasted all night with the National Press Club, and we married. And um, I knew there was a seam of infidelity in my husband's family. But, you know, I was young, and I was optimistic, and we were in love, and I never thought those you know, the dissemblings and dishonesty that uh, trail through affairs would ever come to visit me. And so I never really gave a thought. We had a very happy marriage. We were posted to Washington as young correspondents where we had our children. And I say that we often, uh, we grew in ash because we lived in a suburb that was on the wrong side of town. Even though it was 14 blocks from the Capitol. It was in the middle of a crack cocaine battle and we had a neighbor who was shot. There was a sign in our um, local laundromat that asked patrons to take the bullets out of their pockets of their jeans before they put them in the washing machines. And so we were very close talked a lot about lots of things when we came back to australia that was when i um you know discovered the affairs we'll be married 25 years by that time so we had a solid marriage we shared a lot we spoke a lot we communicated a lot but there were things that were just he felt great dissatisfaction over and that
0: became apparent of course once the affairs were revealed well we will of course get into that and the detail of that you're jumping ahead on me which is fine your book starts with these words kate Affairs are as a little like childbirth. Someone is always having one somewhere, usually right under the nose of a spouse because nobody knows everything that happens inside a marriage, not even the people in it. <laughs> How did you find out about your husband's affair? Well, he owned up the first time because um, the husband of the
1: woman who he had the most substantive affair with had just gone through their phone records and discovered the affair And we'd all been at a a lunch to celebrate the 50th birthday of a mutual friend. And um, they arrived late. I was a very close, she was a very close friend of mine. I had no idea that they had had been seeing each other. And that night when we got home, my husband called me out to the garage. And uh, I say there amongst the sort of, you know, old paint cans and rusted bicycles, he dumped his own bit of hard rubbish. And at that time, I was absolutely blindsided. You know, it was a terrible shock. And I got into the car and I drove around the neighborhood thinking, where will I land with my stinking trouble? Everyone else was sort of, you know, busy getting ready for the next week. And I came home after much sobbing and just decided to get on with things because our our eldest was going into year 12 and I didn't want to sabotage his prospects. So we sort of settled down, bedded down and decided to really try and make a fist of it. And so we did for for a number of years and it was three years later um, that I sat down at the home computer and my husband had forgot to sign off his personal email account. And there were all these, um, I just saw her address immediately. And also he was corresponding with another woman, um, at the same time. And, um, that was sort of the most terrible blow because I had, you know, I had, had, surrendered to his promises, um, you know, as they say, uh, uh trust is a risk masquerading as a promise and um i it was devastating to read those emails which i did of course i couldn't help myself because it was there in purple prose and i could see you know it was the first version he'd given me he diminished the affair made it seem as though it was just a um, a couple had happened only a couple of times and i could see here how you know much of a love affair it truly was and that was devastating for me and he uh, again went into this process of denial because they always do lies lies and more lies and um that night i burgled his phone and that was the most devastating of all you know to realize the extent the full extent of it then that he couldn't he couldn't deny it any further you know i was so angry that i'd been so deaf and dumb and blind and i'd let him back into our lives and i just punched myself as hard as i could and i left this sort of quite violent bruise on my shoulder uh which i say in the book i was sort of vivid, in a way i was sort of weirdly proud of this physical proof of my discombobulation and um you know because grief scores us in strange ways and um I understood then, you know, I I experienced not only the sort of symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but also having to reconcile what you thought was the past with what you now knew to to have transpired. And, you know, just the feeling that you'd been cast aside and completely uh, um, ignored in other people's pursuit of their needs and passions. And that was um, a very hard blow to swallow.
0: Kate, you talk about this as a a double betrayal in that the woman who your husband had this passionate affair with, well, you were close to her. Very I, close. Mm. Mm, did, did, did you confront her about it once you found out the extent of the relationship? No, I never did. Um,
1: she sent me this sort of a, a rather pathetic um, note on Basil and Bond paper, almost as though she was thanking me for a dinner party she'd attended, and I just shredded it. I didn't ever confront her. Um, I'm, I'm not that sort of person, and... Um, I, in a way, I just thought that I had to handle this by myself. And, you know, and I had forgiven her. I have forgiven everyone in this drama, which is a wonderful place to have reached finally. Um, and I could see why he'd be attracted to her because she was such a delightful person to be with. Um, and But yeah, that was really, I could understand my husband had a log of claims. I understood his grievances, but I felt I had done nothing to her to deserve such betrayal and deceit. And I say in the book that afterwards I experienced these Surges of a murderous ire so that I really understand now how betrayal and treachery can lead to physical, terrible physical violence. I mean, I, I, I didn't act on it, but I felt it and I turned it against myself. But I understand, you know, where every time we read about these shocking murders of um, often of wives and children mostly, I understand, you know,
0: where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And because, because the fl- flip side of love is, is deep hate, is passionate hate, I suppose. Yes.
1: And it's that moment, I mean, Helen Garner left her, her um, cheating ex a note that said, don't you understand that lying to people can make them go crazy? And it sort of does make you go crazy, you know, because it's this feeling of your, your self-worth has been
0: completely diminished and belittled because nobody gives a hoot a, a about you. Mm. But actually, it's not about you, is it, in, in that? It, actually, it's about the people who are moving mm. away from the relationship into the affair.
1: Yeah. And because I've never had an affair, I, I, I really had to try and understand in the writing of the book. And um, to realise, you know, how it gives moral rectitude the flick, and it's just, they're like wildfires; they jump fences. They don't, they don't really
0: have cast a second look to the people that they might be mowing down. The, this concept you talk about of being blindsided, um, oh. it invites you to think about the fact that you may have seen it or signs of it but not with your eyes wide open. What are your reflections when you look back over those years of infidelity of your husband? Do you think there were signs you saw but missed? Oh, yes, I do. And part of that was
1: because I was so busy. I had two younger children. I was, you know, doing all the things. I was working. I had the children. I was trying to help out at school. I was doing so much and I I was exhausted. And I didn't give him enough time or space. And I also think that my upbringing, I hadn't really learned enough about pleasure and the importance of pleasure and the importance of intimacy in relationships. So I was doing on the surface everything that I thought was expected of me as a good wife and a good mother, but I had ignored that relationship. And I understand that now and that, you know, this is the thing about Esther Perel's sophisticated analysis of of infidelity in affairs. You know, it's about what it did to one and what it meant to the other and the the whole purpose of of trying to write one word in front of the other and, and, and recognize what happened is learning what you did, your own role in both ignoring it because he did come to me and uh, at, you know he was this was a constant refrain of his the what the desire for more sex that I didn't give get into easily enough and that's the thing I tried to address when we both tried to um to work together to make our marriage um stick and uh yeah you, know, you know I write in the book about having a Brazilian, <laughs> which was another bit of domestic violence against myself as <laughs> hey uh, far more painful than childbirth. I'll never ever do it again. But I tried to, I really tried, you know, to, to make myself available in a way that I hadn't been before. And that was one of the silver linings of finding out about the affair and I guess being open enough to, you know, the mistakes I'd made and trying to address them and understand the role of sex and intimacy in
0: relationships. So was it about sex or was it, uh, you know, a lack of emotional intimacy that existed within the relationship? No, I don't think it was
1: in lack of emotional intimacy because we're we're very emotionally close and we have remained emotionally close. And that's one of the extraordinary things, I guess, about um, the way in which we have walked this road together. But um, it was definitely, uh, you know, I I just didn't want to have to deal with that. I was too exhausted. I was too tired and I just didn't want to deal with it at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he did. I I thought that was a valid complaint, but I felt that, but, you know, um, the Countess, as I call her in the book, which is based on the Count Bronsky character in Anna Karenina. The Countess, um, I mean, I had done a thing to her. I mean, you know we had a good relationship. So yes, it was it was uh, you know that uh, was definitely a uh, you know a problem, and um, uh, you know, I tried to address it. But in the end, I don't think it was that just about sex from his point of view. I think it was about his deep insecurity. And I think also because of the nature of the job he had at the time, You know, they often say that um, everybody laughs at rich men's jokes. I mean, he had a very powerful position in the media and I think everybody just said yes to him. And it was that was just part of, you know, going on to um, execute that power in other areas outside of the office. Also, you know, in the domestic sphere and and in the bedroom.
0: Mm -hmm. You said in an interview um, that you felt you hadn't nurtured the relationship enough, that he was a romantic man and Mm -hmm. you weren't. And it sort of ate away at your relationship um, that that you felt loved and satisfied enough, but he did not. And that was a great mistake. When you reflect on that, you know, do you think that you wanted enough, asked for enough love in return? Obviously, he felt not satisfied about the amount of love or the way that you were loving him. Mm.
1: Well, I think, yes, and, and he has you know, he hasn't probably examined himself in the in to, to, in the level of detail or the granular detail that I have. Um, and I know he looks back on this time. He said to me only recently that, you know, he, he's still, still full of self-loathing. He just cannot understand what he, what on earth he was doing at the time. And so he obviously, you know, just put that, he's very good at compartmentalizing things too. So I think he just shut that down and just, you know, this is what he wanted to do. So he just went ahead and did it. And, you know, he got, more and more careless because of course that's what happens i think um and look you know it was the, it was the dishonesty with the dishonesty that really really hurt me in the end uh, um, as well as the knowledge that he was of course having this extraordinary relationship with somebody outside of our marriage um, but it was a, it was a pattern of behavior and once in the, the second time before i took him back and i can't believe sometimes that i did that but i i think uh, you know what part of the Um, process of writing the book is to look at the role of the death of my own mother and I think I really cleaved to the family that I had found and I didn't want to let it go and that's why I let him back in the second time around and I said before he came back that he had to tell me everybody, I didn't want to find any more dead bodies on the ground. So he needed to tell me everyone who he had slept with and which he did. And that was an encyclopedic list and it was actually, Esther Perel discourages couples from doing this because it often, you know, gets in the way towards any chance of reconciliation. But for me, it was a great relief because I could see it just wasn't just about our relationship. It was something that he had been doing for a long time, even before he had unhappiness and disappointment and dissatisfaction in the
0: marriage. And of course, in the book, you do go into looking at patterns of infidelity. Um, one thing Esther Perel says is that infidelity is often a longing for our lost selves. How true is that? Yeah. And I- and again, sort of brings home this idea that it's actually not necessarily about the two people in the relationship where, where there is that betrayal, but the person seeking something outside of that to find something of themselves. Um, yeah. So your husband hasn't examined himself. Was that part of him moving outside the relationship to try and find what he, he was looking for? And, yeah, and I just think the excitement and the frisson of, though, of that,
1: um, of following that, you know, singular spiral of passion, I think, was, um, was part of that. And, uh, you know, he didn't want to own up to what he was doing. You know, they, they, they're, they're amazingly good at dissembling. And uh, as I, you read out in that, in that first, in, in that introductory section, that they are, you know, so good at massaging the truth, they often kid themselves in order to um, allow themselves to continue whatever it is they're doing
0: and And when you talk about sort of going back into the relationship and because you're motivated by wanting to keep the family together when mm. you had seen you know d- the destruction of families that are not, mm. um, you're then, of course, living with the the dark stain of betrayal. And mm. distrust is a very it's a very difficult burden to carry mm. Mm. and And I suppose it would eat away and corrode the relationship somewhat. Mm. How did you manage that living back in a relationship? Oh, with look- that corrosion? That was terrible. That was the worst thing of all.
1: I think I just be- I went from head in the clouds of living to being an absolute super sleuth, even though I wasn't very good at that. Amazingly, I hate to admit that being a journalist of forty years standing, I was uh, questioned everything. I tried to get his travel records. I was always looking, you know, trying to get his phone. Um, I think I say in the book, the side of myself crawling around the bed at three a.m. in the morning just trying to check on him it was just s- sort of an anathema to me. But that was who I'd become, and that's the most hateful, horrible thing about the process. And you can't help it. Because you don't believe anymore. So you're seeking for, you know, proof of, of whatever they've told you. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, it, it really is. It's just, it, it's hard to explain to anybody who hasn't been through it, but that is definitely the worst part of it, just who you became. You see yourself becoming this hyper doubtful, suspicious, untrusting person. And, um, but of course, you know, of course you will be like that because you've been told all these lies. Lies are and lies, and lies, and lies. They just go on and on and on. And you think they're going to stop and they never do. And in the end, that was the thing that killed the marriage, ultimately, because it was just too difficult to continue because I would never believe anything he said. And I was always wanting for a second opinion, proof, you know, evidence, and, um, we never really got out of that rut.
0: Right. And then of course, many years later, you came back to examine what did occur, mm. uh, through, mm. through that pattern of, and the complexity of his infidelity, um. <laughs> And in many ways, the book is, you know, it's a very personal and raw and emotional account of your journey through that, but also yeah. a journalistic response to trying to understand yeah. and theorize. Yeah. And yeah, what did you discover, I suppose, about inherited infidelity through the research? Well, that was the fascinating thing. And that was what the
1: first, my first response the first lot of infidelity was to write about it. And I, I had a literary agent at the time who was an older woman. She was a very droll New Yorker. And she just said to me, when I raised the idea of doing a book on this, she said, okay, I don't think that's such a great idea. So I just said it to one side and I wrote a novel based on infidelity. And then I wrote another book and I probably would not have returned to it had I not discovered that the devilry between us had leached into our kin. So when I discovered that our youngest son had had an affair that busted up his engagement, I thought, oh my goodness me! You know, this has gone on and on and on, and I decided then to go back to the story about my husband's grandmother to look at his um, the relationship between his mother and his father because that had ended as a result of a long-standing affair that his father had had, and then to look at us and then to look at our son. And this story sweeps across a hundred years of Australian life. It goes from Broken Hill in 1936. It sweeps through all of the changes that encompass. You know the movement in a society through a hundred years, the role of women becoming independent, and um, you know, to the point now where you know women often don't even need a man in the house to be to have children. Uh, you know, they can work, they can earn their own income. So, it's a story, uh, you know, of the change in values in mores, and it was not only when that happened that I decided to look at it. Initially, I was going to look at it in the fictional realm, and but as part of that, I started to look at this research. So, I found evidence of, um. Uh, three separate studies were done in America which showed that children who were raised in a family of origin where they experience infidelity are significantly more likely to go on and repeat that behavior because they, they see perhaps that affairs can break up an unhappy relationship and lead to joy and happiness later on. And then I came across that fascinating um, research into the moles in America where they were, they were um, there are these two um, types species of moles. There's the prairie mole which blew the minds of zoologists who were studying them, using them to study population booms and bust, and they discovered the voles were turning up in pairs. Very unusual in mammalian species. So they thought initially that the, um, there, was, there was sexual monogamy between the voles, but they discovered through DNA fingerprinting that the fact that some voles were um, guilty of infidelity themselves and, were, and um, often male vol- prairie voles were raising the young of somebody else. But nonetheless, they bonded, they attached, and they, they, they raised their young together. And then these neuroscientists became fascinated by the voles and they compared the prairie vole with the montane vole, which lives in the Rocky Mountains up in the northwest of America. And they found that um, the voles are 99% genetically alike. But there's a 1% genetic difference and it's the neural wire in the brains of the voles. So the prairie voles that attach and bond, they have more neural receptors that pick up the neurotransmitters of vasopressin and oxytocin, which promote and enhance bonding. And the, the um, Rocky Mountain bowls have fewer receptors and they're further away from the reward and reinforcement circuitry so of the brain. So there's no, we're not prisoners of our own biology and this is not a correlation only. It's not cause and effect, but they now think that, that, we, that some people may be, because of their neural wiring, they may be predisposed to risky behavior. And I thought this was absolutely fascinating and doesn't let people off the hook. I mean, I have two sons, one of whom is absolutely loyal and true. And I can't imagine him ever having an affair. But the other one is very like his father in lots of other traits, and um, and I could see, you know, also those same traits in my husband's father, who was the, um, you know, the one who pursued infidelity in his family and and in the grandmother. And those traits are, you know, an extraordinary uh, attention to. Uh, they're very sociable. Um, have, have an engine of determination. They pursue their goals and needs. Nothing gets in their way very attentive to their clothes to their dress often because of deep insecurity you know so they're therefore much more drawn to the sort of a superficiality of presentation and of um you know social interaction and i so that's as you say that's the journalist in me who went to try and find some understanding and then it gave me uh really the architecture to look at um you know the rawness and the the deep personal uh, you know uh, feelings that are involved in these very complex um vexed relationships
0: yeah indeed and um and I think you cover that nuance beautifully because it's not the binaries of of victim perpetrator you know cheater non-cheater it's really not There's, there's so much more that we all carry and um I love the phrase you talk about the vein of betrayal uh, there's something runs much deeper than even our conscious soul yes. around the way that we make our choices in our life. And you um, think how
1: much yeah. know about the brain, uh, you know, it's the frontier of, of really of, of neuroscience is really the frontier of modern medicine. And where, you know, when I was growing up, it was nature versus nurture. We all thought it was nurture, not nature, that nature had very little to do with things when, you know, we all gave our, our boys dolls and our girls Tonka trucks, you know, because we believed that we could make them really into different natures. But I think in fact, now I've really think there's so much of nature and nurtures just changes and adapts at the margin
0: and yeah Yeah. definitely um yeah I often think of with with our kids you know I've got four kids and and they're all very very different Yes, and um I know it's a lot and um I think of a lump of clay and you can only really work with the outside you'll never ever get to that that inner uh, you know, nature that they're born with yeah. that is inherited or is something else. But, yeah, it's really interesting mm-hmm. to look um, to look at that. Trent Dalton, another uh, great novelist, he talks about your book as sort of an investigation of the value of monogamy on uh, mm-hmm. himself. And I wondered um, about whether you believe in lifelong monogamy for humans or is this just a patriarchal construct that's actually not really achievable?
1: Oh, look, you know, what a fraught question is that? Um, because I do, in my heart of hearts, believe in it. And I think that the stability of family, if it's a good family, you know, you don't want to stay around if you're being abused physically, emotionally, you know, I mean, that's not a happy, good relationship. But, you know, life is full of curveballs. And, we, we you know, I think we, we're in a society now where we're always trying to correct things and it's, we're always searching for perfection and, and the pursuit of the individual. And I think that you know, long-term relationships if they're at their heart they're good you know they can sail you know they can have wild voyages they can uh, survive drastic storms but at the heart of um but there's a history in staying together that I think is a, has a source of beauty in it and that if you can stay together um and you've got children you know it's just it can be such a beautiful unit and you can te- and, and the journey is part of discovering the good and the bad of relationships and I say in the book that I I'm as I'm as drawn to the dark side of love as I am to the wonder and joy of it. And, you know, if you can survive it together, um, you grow from it. You know, this is the thing, you can use it to pilot emotional growth. And isn't that part of life? Isn't that part of growing? It you know, it's 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 especially when you're older, you you know, you're so fascinated by the mystery of how you've become who you are. Um and there's there's something to be gained from that understanding. And it's not always going to be good and it's not always going to be fruitful. But you know, it, it's part of life that you experience both the dark, the bad, the gruesome, as well as the highs and the lows. And I think we we forget that sometimes in our pursuit of perfection and happiness and joy. Um, but it, you, there is a lot to be gained from the rough patches. Definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I would, you know, I really and I and I get so broken sometimes when I hear. I mean, I just hear of people leaving when when children are so young. Um, giving up, giving up and throwing it all out the window for nothing other, no other reason than discontentment and a little bit of boredom and a bit of unhappiness, rather than seeing whether you can work through those things together, Um, you know, because there is the gold in the veins of brokenness. And, you know, that is part, part of understanding life. And I often talk in my, about Annie O'Know's book, because she wrote Simple Passions from the point of view of the mistress and what an extraordinary experience this was for her. And she says that that she thanks, even though that relationship broke up, as often affairs do, she said it brought her closer to the world. And that's what I feel about all of the pain and agonies that I've suffered through my life. They bring me closer to the world. And we're here for such a short time. And don't you want to see it in all its aspects, not just the sort of, you know, glossy um, uh, velvet sheen. You want to see beneath that. You want to dig beneath that. You want to delve beneath that. You want to experience because you don't appreciate the highs without the lows and you also understand so much more about the complexity of the human condition if you're forced to face it and confront these things so yeah I know it's a sort of weird attitude but I've come to it at this point in time and um, you know I'm grateful in a way I said to someone the other day you know I've got to thank my husband for the infidelity in some ways because it's given me a whole understanding and insight into the human condition that I would never have had and I'm glad for it at the age of 66 to have seen that and to have survived it, I guess, and to have come out the other side with a sense of understanding and forgiveness. And that's what process of writing is all about. And, you know, that that thing, putting one word in front of another and understanding it. And, you know, the honesty and being honest, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, you're so brave. I think that's a euphemism for you are so crazy to have vented this. But- you know, as we said, we were talking initially before we, we began our conversation about mental illness and 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 infidelity, and they're both still, there's these taboos around them. There's secrecy and shame, and I just don't think there's anything to be gained from secrecy and shame. I really don't think there is. Sarah Krasnostan, I wrote a beautiful review she wrote of Succession recently where she said, um, what is denied will not be healed, and what goes unexamined will be repeated. And I think that, for me, summarised in a sense of what, what my purpose was in writing this book. And I think it's given my, my, the children and who um, my daughter-in-law says she felt during the affair, because she was sort of witness to it, because she was with my eldest son at that time, she felt like she was standing on the shoulder of a road being sprayed by gravel. And now because of the psychological objectivity in the book, she comes away with a sense of understanding of what it was about. And if I can help anyone, you know, I tried to sort of give, because I got no advice when I married my husband, not one shred of advice my mother wasn't with me anymore you know we, we spend more time researching washing machines than we do often you know the, the history about the person we're about to marry and I, I do that work do that due diligence have those conversations has he or she or she or she or she or he or he or, he or he, them or them ha, have they been unfaithful before is there a track record fidelity do you need to discuss that you know those were conversations I never had with my husband before I got married and so I really wanted to try and to try to um, offer some advice to people um, in a way that they might not get from other books. In, and also then show them, give them some handrails for how they make, might stay upright
0: when they're trying to survive, you know, whatever knocks them flat. And I suppose when we marry or, or choose to spend a lifetime with a hound and commit to it, that it's not just them we're marrying, it is their family and their history and yeah. uh, whatever sits in there. And of course, the book explores not just your your yeah. uh, marital issues, but also the scenes of mental illness and depression in your own Mm. family, there's a beautiful and painful and raw and honest chapter in the book um, called A Room in My Heart about your younger brother. Tell, tell mm-hmm. us about your younger brother. Well, oh, look, I'll probably start crying in a minute because, you know, he he causes,
1: um. My, well, there were, we, were th- we were three of us and he was the youngest and he causes me and my older brother, you know, a lot of grief. And because, you know, with family, I think often people behave with family in a way they don't behave, obviously, <laughs> in public but with friends because you think your family's not going to leave you. And um, and so where his his, um, you know, where his sounding board, and uh, his get out of jail card. You know, we we manage his finances, um, but he he has been a volatile and often at times violent character um, throughout our childhoods, and it was a house of horrors when we were growing up because there was no, you know, in those days there, were, there was no NDIS, there was very little child psychiatry and psychology, and there was my mother was housebound on her own. She was an extremely intelligent woman and was unable to work. And I mean, you have to ex- experience this to understand, you know, the uh, the trauma involved in living with someone who just can go off like a bomb. And you know, he still he still does that. And um, it, it's you know, a question of how you how you manage that. That's the only chapter I, I, I showed everyone who was um, mentioned, or re- except for the Countess and my brother. My brother doesn't read very well. He's intellectually disabled, and um, so he doesn't know I've written that essay. Uh, but I felt that it was my tithe. I exacted my tithe for the, for the, for the, for the pain and um, grief, you know, he's caused me. And as much as I love him and I do love him, I, of course I love him and I would never leave him alone. I would never desert him. But I, when I was thinking about that essay, I read David Sedaris' book, Calypso, where he talks about his sister Tiffany and um, he was giving a, a talk at the Boston Symphony Hall and um, he's standing in the, you know, sitting in the green room and he suddenly sees Tiffany walking towards him with shoes that look like they've got, her, but, you know, she's retrieved them for a dumpster and she's holding a Starbucks bag and he just says to the, the bouncer, close the door. And the guy closes the door and he said, I never saw her again, not when she was raped, not when she was addicted from the ha- house, not the first time she committed suicide. She was somebody else's problem. I couldn't deal with her anymore. And I thought, my God, I was appalled by that. But as I've as you know as I've got older, I um I really wanted to um, uh, delve into that and understand, you know, the chafing of emotion of frustration, you know, um, uh, unhappiness. The, some of the some of the things that he's invo- embroiled us in, his um, abuse of us at times, and it's just it it requires an enormous understanding and enormous forgiveness. Because these people aren't rational often and they, they, you know, you can't expect them to make sense. And, um, you know, I've got to understand that volatility, even medication, is part of his personality and part of his behavior. And I guess it, 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 that has enabled me writing that essay and understanding more about the, you know, the vexed nature of our relationship and um, trying to track the difficulties of his life has, has made me both more empathetic towards him. Um, and also accepting of who he is. And it's just one of those, you know, crosses you have to bear. And I would never, and I think, you know, I look at all the homeless people on the streets of Melbourne and I think so many of them are probably mentally ill. I know they are. And their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their aunts, their uncles have probably just done what David Sedaris did and closed the door. And so I guess it's just a thing of how do you keep that door open um, and how do you go on loving people who are sometimes impossible to love?
0: Mm, it's a really complex wondering and um, mm. I, un- I understand it. I have a young, mm. my youngest brother uh, in a mm. complex family is also on the NDIS and has a complex psychiatric illness. Um, and I also can't desert him, mm. Uh, mm. but but I can't save him either or fix no, him. And no. so there's this very difficult love that sits in that place, which is, there's an exponential need, an unsavable person. Mm. But mm. if your empathy and love extends over there, then, then it's working out where is that boundary to say, actually, I can thrive and exist in my own right, in my own life, mm. uh, but let you still continue to suffer. Uh, mm. It's a very, very difficult thing, I suppose, for many um, people or many families who have got someone unwell in their midst. And I have to say, you know, and actually Trent asked me
1: this, once in a book thing I did with him where he said, what has given you your sense of empathy and understanding? And I said, it was my brother because he has exposed me things, to things that I wouldn't have otherwise understood or experienced. And that is the wonderful thing about family because you can't choose your family. You can choose your friends. You can choose your partners in life. You cannot choose your family. And therefore, they expose you to the you know extraordinary diversity of humanity. And so to that extent, again, Um, Even though I wish his sake he hadn't been born with the troubles that are on his shoulder, I thank him for um, giving me a measure of understanding about what it must be like when your mind declares a war on you, because that's what it's like for him at times. His mind declares a war on him and he can see no other path except for the violent expressions of whatever's troubling him at the time. And, you know, so I've been grateful for that. I think he's shaped me and I've been grateful for the way in which he's um, en- enabled me to understand that, um, you know, it's a small solve. But, um, and I I, you know, I do wrestle with this every day, Madeline, because he, um, you know, I mean, even now he's sort of making noises about unha- being unhappy where he's living. And I suspect that in due course I will end up living with him because I am on my own um, and I-, I will look after him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no one else to do it, no one else to do
0: it. And you probably will too. Is he living? Is your brother living independently? Is he living? No, he lives in a oh. in a hospital setting because he he needs you know very intensive care. Um, I'm right. interested in you saying you you will end up living with your brother as if there's a resignation there that that you have no other choice because some people would choose away from that. Some people walk away from difficult families or situations.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, because I have to, I will always be managing it. In some ways, it might be it. So, I think in ultimately it might be easier for me to have him, you know, with me. Uh, everyone says, don't do that, don't do that. You're not allowed to do that, and you can't do that. But I suspect ultimately that's what it'll come down to. And the thing about mental illness and the thing about aging is that as you become older, it's almost like infidelity too. As men become older, they lose the capacity, of course, to be out chasing sex. And I think when we grow older, we do mellow a little. And I'm hoping that that, that the volatility he experiences will, um, you know, perhaps in five years or so, you know, it be be a different course, and then I will be able to accommodate him better. There, um, it, you know, it's just something you have to, you know, I, I I haven't made a firm decision on that, but it's it's something that I'm now coming to terms with eventually. Mm. You know, because it is, it's often more problematic to be managing the the um, daily crises, and if, at least if they're there in your home,
0: um, you know, you can keep a keep a closer eye on it all. It's very, very stoic uh, of you, I think. Too. Um,
1: well, yeah, I know, and it gets back to that thing of family, you know. my my father's dead, my mother died when I was twenty three. Um, you know, my elder uh, brother has now had this terrible family tragedy, and um, he he lives up on the north coast, and I'm the one who's here closest to um to our brother. So. You know, it probably it probably will be me. But then, you know, and that's Aesop's fable I tell about the, um, you know, the father who said to his sons he gave them a bunch of sticks and he said um, try to break the sticks and the, they, he couldn't break them in a bunch but when he gave them the sticks individually, you can break them apart. And so, you you know, family's really ultimately all we've got. They're the people who will probably rescue you, who will probably take you in. And there's that lovely definition which I've always loved in that Robert Frost poem, Um uh, about the hired man and his definition of home is home is where you go, where they you don't have to deserve it. They will take you in. And that's my feeling about family, that there's that bond, strong bond that is unbreakable. And, um, you know, you know, it may not, might not be perfect. You might wish for another sort of family, but that's the family you've got. And that's the family you ultimately have to accommodate
0: and, um, and you know, and loved, and and of course the book you know really is about the family you have come from and the family you yeah. married into and understanding those yes. two parts. Yeah. And I was trying to work out sort of a, with each chapter is it sort of an examination, a rumination, uh, exploration, explanation. You know the book is in all of these things. Actually, it's not doing one linear thing, and in fact, it's not really a continuous narrative in lots of ways. There's the poem that, that you have said you love, The Circus and oh, yeah. Desertion, and yeah. the last line of that is is about this this foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Mm. And I wondered if your book really was about an examination of your own rag and bone shop of the heart. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, because
1: it's made up of all of those pieces that you, some of which you've inherited, some of which you collected, some of which is born within you you know, some of which, you know, are, are the dark places that you don't wish to go. But it's part of the richness of um, of being to um, own them all, to accept them and, you know, to learn from them, I guess. And that's where the piloting of emotional growth comes from and the being closer to the world and, you know, understanding the voyage you've taken and, and this mystery of how we become who we are and, you know... Yeah, it is the sort of molten. It's the the anvil, of the blacksmith's forge, the family. You know that, that as we were speaking about before, it's where that nature is shaped and beaten in um, hot metal and cooled, and um, and then then that's the character you become. And mm. uh, the the going down and um, that that was the that poem gave me the means of marrying together these two scenes of life um, and exploring them and. Describing them and hopefully uh, um, enabling others to see things in their own family and come to terms with seams of discomfort and disquiet, um, and uh, you know it's acceptance. Acceptance, I guess, is the is is the message of the book um, that uh, you know life is a process of. uh, This is a line that Heather Rose, I must quote her, wrote: "Life is a process of, um, of of accepting and forgiving." ourselves in the choices we make to become who we are and, you know, and also the forces that shape us. And that was the, that was the idea in, in going down into the, into the uh, garage and going through my father's filing cabinet where all of these papers, um, he, he, was an archivist and a historian. he kept all of this information about my brother, my mother, who was, you know, had her own torment and disquiet. And it was a, it was a hard place to dwell. It was a project that really took shape in lockdown. And I think that, you know, it's an extraordinary time for all of us because I think a lot of us turned inward and we, we became introspective and we tried to find withins in our lives because we'd lost the support of the of the, uh, the structure that existed pre-pandemic. And uh, and it was, a, for me, you know, we, not a moment was wasted. And as someone once said, time spent in reconnaissance is seldom, is seldom wasted. And it wasn't. And my husband said that he was... I was writing this book. He really sort of watched me heal in lots of ways, and uh, I think in my own family, I really came to terms with the legacy of our mother and the legacy of my brother, which we're still which we're still carrying, and and my father in lots of ways. And I did try to to lift the lid, lift, unpick the scab, and um, and you know get really try and disentangle you know some of the some of the nastier bits, but um, not in a in a vengeful
0: way again, in in this search for exploration and understanding and discovery. And so was the book, um, you say it's a book of acceptance, had that acceptance come before you wrote it or was the act of writing itself brought you to acceptance and understanding? Mm. Yes, it's
1: the act of writing it. It's the act of writing it because it forces you. And this is the other thing about doing nonfiction uh, as against a fictional treatment, say, of the infidelity, I don't think I was ever done a fictional treatment of my family, although I've always borrowed bits and pieces of my family in writing some of my earlier novels. But um, it keeps you honest. If I knew, I knew that my husband would be reading it, I knew that my mother-in-law would be reading it, I knew that my children would be reading it, and it really kept me honest in a way that I think fiction, you know, can can um, let you off the leash. Um, you are able to massage and curate and and uh, and make the most flattering portrait, present yourself to the world in the light that you want to be showing. And the one thing about journalism and, um, you know, trying to put yourself walk in another's shoes, trying to understand what has happened to someone in their life, you know, there's never one version. There's your version, my version, and somewhere in between lies the truth. And I think it really held my pen to the fire in a way that it wouldn't have happened if I'd been writing a fictional um, version of events that I, I'm sure I would have, I would have but, but, sewn and stitched together in the most flattering way to make my victimhood stand out rather than to understand where I had gone wrong, the mistakes I had made. And, I mean, we all make mistakes. We're all human, from Timber. I mean, I was only talking with my son this morning and I, I'm too ashamed to even mention what he raised with me that I had said when I was, uh, you know, a younger mother. And, um, you know, good on him because, you know, it's only through raising these things and talking about them and I had to apologise for something that I had done in as a mother, um... And I think, you know, I've always been an oversharer and I think, again, it's what we were saying about, you know, I just don't think secrecy and shame ever resolves anything. And it's only through talking about things, owning, being honest about them, that you you reach a, a place where even if you don't agree with each other, you can understand where each of you is coming from. And, um, you yeah, know, that's always been my quest in journalism. Um, and, you know, oversharing has also been a part of um, who I am, um, no filter. Um, and... Uh, I think also that having spent 40 years asking other people to unburden themselves and to be, you know, you want people to be as honest and as intimate with you as you can possibly get in journalism, and especially long-form journalism when you're doing long pieces on on, on people's conundrums and conflicts. And, you know, you need, it, 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 it's, a, it's a grace that comes from understanding, um,
0: but it does require you to be, you know, honest, to be very as honest as you can possibly be. This is of course your story when you've spent decades telling other mm. people's stories. I was interested and and possibly perplexed as to why it mattered to you so much that your husband sort of had a right of reply on the detail of 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 how he was portrayed in the book. Why did it it matter so much to you that he was comfortable with the telling of your story? Because it's his story too, um and because he had
1: entrusted me with the story of his um father and his mother and his grandmother and so that was i was carrying something that was very precious and special and i i really had to respect that and be an honest um, courier and and messenger of those truths and so that's why it was important to me and it was funny also the the reason why i put in the line about him saying it was too judgmental in the beginning when he read the first draft i was telling a girlfriend of mine a family lawyer and she said oh you've got to put that in you've got to you know The process is as interesting as us, to us, to readers, as, you know, the rawness of the, you know, of the transgressions that are described in the book and, you know, that his response would be interesting to people and it was valid and, you know, it again showed how you often have just have to adjust your perspective of things to take in somebody else's point of view and so it was important to me and also because I wouldn't have been able to, you know, I didn't want to publish it. If it was going to cause more strife, I didn't want to damage to be get damaged. You know, there has to be a line drawn at some point. And, the, you know, this, this um, uh, you know, there was also, as I said, if I'd written it 10 years ago in the rawness and the heat of that moment, it would have been a very different book. And I really am grateful to my former agent for saying you need that distance, you need that time, you need that perspective because things do pass they do pass and the, and the, the, an emotion is often such a uh, it derails you so often and it and it discourages you from from seeing some of the nuance and subtlety of the um, the conflicts that you're trying to describe. So that was really important I think that distance and perspective that it gave me and also I have moved on and learned to let go and that was something a lesson I had to learn you know I think I was very bad at that because I was so terrified of abandonment and I've now, you know, I've been living on my own. I have a, I have a I have a partner, but we don't live together. And um, that's that's really been enormously important for me. We're all ultimately alone, and to be accepting of that, um, you know, because it's the circumstances I find myself in uh, to be able to understand that. So, it, yeah, that that was why those details and and the respect for his um, response to what I'd written, I felt I really had to put that in the. And he, you know, good on him. He was very, you know, it's caused him some grief. Uh, you know, of course it has. You know, it hasn't been easy for him, but he's had the flashbacks too. And also no one likes a cheater, you know, so there's been some personal animosity that he's he's had to deal with, you know, but I think he's he's used it to grow himself in the, in the publication and in the discussions and the conversations that, w- that, that have been ongoing that the book's caused and contributed to. And, um, you know, that's also been an important fallout from the book, I think. You know, it's a funny thing because everyone wants speeches. That's just the funny thing I've discovered on the, in doing, you know, literary festivals and talking to groups of women and, you know, because they often are, you know, how people really, and they feel a bit disappointed in me that there wasn't enough of that. But, you know, I had reached a different point by then. But as I said to you before, um, you know, when we were talking about the double whammy of being blindsided by the two of them and what did I do, I never did do anything to her. The only thing I did do was when I sat down at that, at that, computer screen and discovered these emails that he had you know his personal email account that he had left I did send her the emails that he had written to the other woman so that she could experience what it was like because you know a man who deceives his wife is surely capable of deceiving his mistress but I don't think it was anything she'd ever contemplated and I I, I know that it did have quite an impact and that that's the only thing I did I didn't do anything else. But people really want that and it's interesting. It's it's interesting to me and I'm not quite sure I understand that but I guess it's part of wanting some sort of justice and vengeance and and revenge is is so often seen as part of that deal with the devil but um, it wasn't something that I felt comfortable with and I'm glad I didn't um, degrade myself by going too deeply into because I wanted to be, you know, the Michelle Obama phrase, you know, you be your best self. They go low, you go high. You know, there's something... It gives you a great sense of dignity and nobility in rising above some of that, and that's important too because it makes you feel stronger when when you survive it and um, having overcome it, and um, perhaps made yourself into a better person as a result.
0: Well, uh, I think Annabel Crabb says that there's bone deep wisdom is you know there's strength and wisdom that that comes through in the book, and certainly the last part of the book is called Wisdom Spots and it's essays and explorations of your reclaimed independence, your learnings, I suppose, through the contemplations of everything that you've been through. You say you're in a relationship now. Mm. um, Does it have similar features and characteristics of the relationship that you left?
1: No, totally the reverse. I've gone from, you know, the the, the mountain alps to the sort of lowlands. (laughs) Very very different relationship. And um, uh, uh, look, nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect. That's the other thing you learn, I think. And, um, uh, you know, I don't think I've made the same mistakes, but after breaking up with my husband and, you know, connecting again with this someone from my past and having sort of also, um, changed my own sense of, uh, you know, desire and pleasure and a greater understanding of the role of sex and intimacy. And of course I hopped into this new relationship and that's all I wanted to do was go to bed. (laughs) And I was with someone who didn't really, who felt like I had in the relationship in my marriage. And I had to laugh at how the way the world turns, and here I was experiencing the very sort of frustrations that my husband had experienced. And you know, we work those things out in this relationship, um, and it gives you. And I get a lot of pleasure and richness out of other things that um, that he, my new partner, brings. And um, uh, and that's what I what I wrote about uh, in in the essay on running with wolves because he has this beautiful white German Shepherd who's l- lowing around somewhere here, but. Um, I've let go of wanting, to, and that's the other thing that I came for this new relationship, not wanting to own and hold and make sure that he wasn't doing anything outside of my point of vision, just to let go of it, just to know that if I loved him and if he loved me, we'll stay there, we'll be together, we'll hang in there. But not to try and own and hold and leash and tether, you know, just to let things, you know, develop as they as they will. Um, and so that's a sort of a release, it's a very liberating feeling to let go of all that. And I think, was part of coming out of the marriage and part of having gone through that tunnel of um, of infidelity and trying to live with the infidelity of being distrustful and then learning that that's what love is about. Love is about letting go. And if you love each other and there is nothing in the relationship, you'll stay together. You know, you'll survive it. So, yeah. And, and being a grandmother and all those sorts of things, you know, and again, you know, my perspectives are so shifted. from when I was a young mother, I was trying to do five things at once, all of them badly and remembering none of them. And now... I have this time to, you know, watch a little boy carry rocks from one backyard to another. So it just gives you a whole other perspective on things. And, you know, and that's also the grace of aging. I think we don't, we don't, we're so busy fighting against aging. Often we don't appreciate the benefits that it gives us. We're trying to sort of put the Botox in and make ourselves, you know, look as beautiful as we did when we were 20 and we're not. No one notices us anymore. So I don't know what the point is of doing all this work on ourselves and our physical, you know, beauty, trying to hold on to some sort of youthfulness. But there are other things to be gained. And one of them is just that, that, that state of grace, that enjoying, you know, the, the growth of young children. I'm very lucky to be a grandmother in lots of ways. And um, it's also brought me and my former husband closer together too. So, you know, that, 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 that rolling on of the family again. And, um, and if you don't have, if you don't have that, I think you often can be the poorer for four and unfortunately not everyone does. So count my blessings, desire what you have. That's the other thing I've learned. Desire what you have and, um, you know, stop trying to correct for everything. You know, what is, is, and, um, come to terms with it, accept it and,
0: you know, find the joy that you can in, in what you have on your plate. Definitely, I think there's a beautiful description in the book toward the end of the Japanese ancient concept of kintsugi, which is when you take broken ceramic yeah. vessels, which you would otherwise discard, and you put powdered gold and lacquer to bind them to create a new uh, sort of broken and beautiful form. Yeah, um, yeah. Something else. And I think you write, our eyes are drawn to the imperfections, the scars, the dents, the accidental knocks, our map of misadventure, how it all worked out in the end, how it nearly didn't do you think things have worked out for you in the end?
1: Well, <laughs> some might say they haven't, but I feel they have. I feel they have. And I feel, you know, I feel very content at this point in life. And, um, you yeah, know, having had the benefit of, of hindsight and having ha- had the benefit of going um, through the process of writing the book, yeah, I feel in a really happy place at the moment. And I heard Dan Lee in an interview with Annabelle last night on Kitchen Cabinet talking about Kintsugi. And, and I mean, look at the, look, and she has an extraordinary story to tell too – and, you know, what I took from that was, was the same sense that I had. She came across a journey from Vietnam in a leaky boat and almost didn't survive. And and after this terrible storm they'd endured, she saw flying fish, um, you know, jumping out of the water. And she said it was just the most, a, a bea- moment of beauty that has, she's held and that healed her at that point in time. And that's what I think, uh, that's where I've come to, you know, that whatever you experience, there'll be some shard of joy some moment of beauty that you can hold onto and grasp and will carry you through. You know, because life is, it's it's an extraordinary gift and uh, we forget that often in trying to make it as perfect as it can be. Absolutely, we're all a little bit
0: broken as vessels. Um, Kate, we always like to uh, ask all of our guests this final question. For all that you have lived through uh, Mm -hmm. and the flawed imperfections that we know exist in in all humans, Mm -hmm. who do you think is doing human really well? Oh
1: my goodness me, uh, gosh that's a really hard question and I have to think very quickly on the spot. Um, who is doing human really well? Well I would say at the moment but the young the young people who are trying to save our planet I guess and perhaps putting um, as much fuel as they can on the fire that's sort of threatening to burn us down. I mean they try to stop it and um, you know, I take my heart, because that to me now is the biggest threat facing humanity. And the thing that I care most about, and so it's the people who I guess who are taking that fight up to the government and um, forcing us all to live differently, and and idea of the common good, the idea of the common good. And I think those young people, I mean, there was recently a court case in America, I think it was announced yesterday that they've now, like the case that was run here, um, where people have have, uh, pointed and exposed the neglectfulness of of, um, our generation, really, we're leading the planet in such a worse state so anyone who is doing anything the young entrepreneurs who are developing renewable technology all of those people who are giving us hope and um, a purpose and and
0: some ideas for change and reinvention to save us all fantastic well thank you again for your time it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and go inside your world thank you madeline thank you so much Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well.